David C.M. Carter. Thank you so much for being on The Jason Wright Show. Thank you very much for inviting me. Well, it's my pleasure. And I got to tell you, this is exactly what this podcast was developed for, is is content and conversations like the one we're about to have. And it's a purely selfish endeavor. I, you know, if I wanted to sit down and talk to you, I couldn't just probably ring you up on the, in the United Kingdom and say, Hey, David, do you mind imparting some of your wisdom to me? But a podcast l- allows me to speak to brilliant people all the time. And so, uh, so you, you are proof positive that my little, uh, my little mission here is working. What I would like to do, and I'm going to have your bio, uh, well, we'll do an intro with it and everything. I don't want you to have to sit through your bio. I don't want you to have to recount your entire almost 50 years of of executive uh, mentoring and experience. I want to get right into some of the topics that you cover. I do want you to, you know, share share some of your 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 history and how you got to the point where you are for sure, please. But I also want to leave the 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 greatest amount of time for actually doing some real time mentoring and coaching for this audience so that they can understand better as leaders or as current followers that would be leaders, some, some tools and tactics they can deploy in their careers. Does that sound okay? Sure. Okay. Wonderful. Well, the first thing I want to talk about is how you develop this idea of tackling character. I know that's a, that's a key component to your mentoring. So I've had a number of people on recently in particular talking about culture. Culture is very important right now. I mean, it always has been, but leaders are now keen to the idea of command and control is a bit outdated. We need to have a purposeful culture. And so that's been talked about quite a bit, but I like your approach where you coach for character. Tell me what that means to you. Um, can I start off by, um, unpacking the word entelechy, which is the name of our company, because it goes, absolutely. It goes back two and a half thousand years to the Greek philosopher, Aristotle. And, um, he coined the phrase entelechy. Um, so the entelechy of an acorn is an oak tree. The entelechy of a caterpillar is a butterfly. And so the, the entelechy of Jason is the ultimate version of Jason with all of his potential fully actualized like the acorn and the oak tree, like the caterpillar and the butterfly. And so I loved discovering the word many years ago that the ultimate version of me or any business I was working on would be its entelechy. Aristotle also coined another phrase, which is that character determines destiny. And what he meant by that was that we all end up in life wherever we end up as a direct function of our character. And if you think of the top five golf professionals in the world or the top five basketball players or the top five athletes, any athlete, they've all got basically the same skill sets and training regimes. So what's the thing that separates the best from the rest? And, and I always believed it was character. And, um, so throughout my long career, um, there's been a red thread of helping people become their entelechy. Now, I didn't even know the word until you know, quite a few years, but that, that's always been my life mission to help people be more successful and 
help them be the best version of the, themselves. And what actually happened was, um, understanding this concept of character. When I was talking with someone, whether it was a mentoring client or whatever, and I asked them lots and lots of questions about the problem they were trying to solve. And I always had two favorite questions. Oh, tell me more. And then they dig a bit. Deeper. Oh, why is that? Tell me more. Why is that? And then you'd eventually get down to what the real problem was. And then as you helped them unpack the solution, very often I'd say to them things like, which by the way, sort of came instinctively. Well, maybe it sounds like you need to be more courageous or more vulnerable or more visionary or more purposeful or more disciplined or reliable. It could be, and they were like, oh yes, I definitely think that would help. And well, how could you do that? And how would it help? And, and, and it was always going off and working on one or two character qualities that solved the problem. And so if you mentor the chief executive of the world's biggest platinum mining company, which I did, uh, with 98,000 employees and 54% of the world's platinum supplies, the last thing he needed mentoring on was mining platinum. You know, he was surrounded by gurus and experts, but he wanted to develop a, a leadership team and a leadership culture within the organization. And over the years, all of the mentors in American Co, which was the international mentoring, CEO mentoring company I started and set up, which eventually became the world's leading CEO mentoring company. All of the mentors used to say to me, what's that story you tell about becoming more reliable or more visionary or more this or whatever? And what I realized that over the years, I'd collected all these stories about different character qualities. And, um, when I wrote my book breakthrough 10 years ago, um, I thought, you know, I've never written down all these character qualities that I've got stories and, and talk about. And it probably took me about a year to talk to all of my old colleagues and clients and, and have them remind me of the character qualities and the stories. And so, um, and so that was how it all came about. And, and the more I sat and poured over thinking about my book and what I was trying to share it, which by the way, initially, uh, was a very modest project. I wrote a book for my two children, um, who I'd bought up on my own for 20 years. And I just decided I want to put it all down in writing and give them a book. And it's actually quite a funny story, but a friend of mine who had written 19 books that had sold more than a million copies each. He, I asked him to read the book and tell me what he thought of it. And he sent it off to a publisher and that's how it got published. It's a good so friend it was, to have, especially in publishing because it's so hard. Yeah. Yeah. So, but anyway, um, what came about was this framework that I had developed over many years, unconsciously, um, and innately it turned into these 54 character qualities that underpin the development of every skill in the, on the planet. And about four or five years ago, I started challenging people saying, well, can you find a 55th one or a 56th one that's missing? And, and, and no one so far has come up with one. <laughs> um, 
And then three and a bit years ago, um, you couldn't open McKinsey Quarterly or PwC's report or the Times or the Sunday Times, The Economist, and everyone was writing about the soft skills crisis. And so we did a massive piece of research over a year and a quarter and asked hundreds of heads of HR and L&D what the soft skills were that their employees or applicants lacked that they needed them to have. <clears throat> and that resulted in a framework with 77 essential soft skills that employers were looking for in their applicants and their workforce that they didn't have. And I had an epiphany one day, which was, hmm, those 54 character qualities underpin those soft skills. And so if I can give you a very quick example, um, one of the world's top 10 global management consultancy firms um, accepted that they were a lot more, a lot less profitable per employee than their competitors and they basically decided it was in order to improve their productivity they the thing they needed to focus on was better time management because they build in six minute increments of time and so everyone in the entire firm over a three-year period was sent off on a two thousand eight hundred and eighty dollars per person three-day time management course and at the end of the course, 95% of the people who went on the course scored 95% in the quiz. And so, well, they were very clever. But then they had to accept that a week, a month, a quarter, half a year later, there was no improvement in time management. And so they called me in and said, how come 95% scored 95% in the quiz? And how come we haven't seen any improvement? So I asked them to show me the course and show me the quiz. And I said, well, the quiz one's easy. You made the classic mistake of assessing what was taught, not what's been learned and applied. Um, and also the course is all about the benefits of time management and the theory of time management, not how to actually become good at it. So I said, look at these six character qualities, accountable, responsible, disciplined, organized, efficient, and reliable. If you taught your people how to be those six character qualities, guess what? They'd be good at time management and would improve their productivity. So you've taught the wrong thing. You've assessed the wrong thing. And there's this domain that sits underneath all of these soft skills, which is character. And you just need to match the right character qualities to those skills and bingo people go, oh, I need to be more reliable. Oh, I need to be more disciplined and more organized or more efficient. Right. I, how do I do that? And then of course they end up being better at time management and more productive. And so every time, I mean, there's so much jargon in the world and particularly in those big consultancy companies and, you know, where people talk about, oh, we need our people to be agile learners and, and blah, 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 blah. Well, actually, what does that mean? My favorite story, and I'm not going to name the, the firm, but in the middle of COVID, um, the CEO, and this is a 30, 40,000 global consulting firm, sent an email to every single employee and said, 
because of COVID and the pandemic and the disruption to our business and the world, everyone in this firm needs to be brilliant from now on at managing VUCA. <laughs> Do you know what VUCA is? I don't know what VUCA is. What is it? Well, by the way, neither did 30,000 employees. Okay, okay good. Um, it stands for velocity, uncertainty, chaos, and ambiguity. Okay. So, you know, so you, everyone was told, you've got to go out and become good at managing VUCA. And they're all going, well, what does that mean? And how do I do that? So we then said, well, here's the half a dozen character qualities that if you're going to have to manage VUCA, you need to be good at. So focus on developing those character qualities, and then you'll be good at managing VUCA. But you can't teach someone to manage VUCA, but you can teach them to be the underpinning character qualities. And so, you know, you do lots of presenting, so do I. Um, we could have the world's best PowerPoint deck that's ever been put together with the snazziest slides and smoke and mirrors and laser beams and everything else. But if you're standing on the stage trembling because you've got no confidence or you're not calm or expressive, then guess what? Your brilliant presentation will fall flat on its face. So what are the character qualities you need to be good at being a presenter? Is never If you can Google making a great presentation, you'll get 13 pages of how to do a great keynote or PowerPoint presentation, but no one's going to teach you how to present in a confident, courageous, empathetic, vulnerable, humorous way to get your brilliant presentation across. Because we all know after we've walked out of a presentation, it wasn't the content that we uh, remember, it's how we felt. Mm -hmm. And if you warm to the person. And so bizarrely, even though I've done, you know, lots and lots of television and radio and lots of talks and book tours and all the rest of it, I never speak with a slide. If I ever present to someone, I, I have one slide only on my screen, and it's the 54 character qualities. I have learned myself that that is one of the things that I've seen in a lot of organizations. If you train people to perform as opposed to actually in, inherently and innately get the skill and it come through in their work, then you're missing the point. And I think that's what was so, that's what happened for so long is that, and it's kind of the fixed versus growth mindset attitude. The The fixed mindset is all about appearances. As long as my PowerPoint looks incredible, then hopefully I will be seen as bright, as opposed to actually understanding enough con the content to such a degree that I can fail. I can I put in the reps to learn the content so that all I need is my one slide with my 54 points that I'm most passionate about. And then I will deliver it in such a way that people, it's believable and it actually penetrates. Going back to the character thing that I thought was an incredible real life account of this that I just saw recently. Uh, my wife lured me into watching the, the David Beckham uh, biography or uh, documentary on Netflix. Now, why my wife wanted to watch a, a, uh, a documentary about a football player, I just can't imagine. And obviously I'm being facetious considering the, uh, the subject was David Beckham. But uh, one of the things that struck me about Beckham I knew nothing about him because I'm I'm the I'm the typical American. We have our football, and then around the most popular sport in the world doesn't really register with us, especially here in East Texas. But uh, so I knew very little about David Beckham or the game. 
but when I watched that, one of my most, the, the thing that impressed me most about him was whenever he was playing, when he was talking to coming over to LA and he was still playing in Europe, I believe it was for Milan. The coach said, you'll never play. No, 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 excuse me. It was for still with uh, Real Madrid. And the coach said, you're never going to play another, another second for Real Madrid. You will not. But he was still under contract. And David Beckham, even though he was not allowed to play in the games, and they actually segregated him from the rest of his teammates and made him practice by himself. And David Beckham, one of the greatest footballers of all time, showed up every practice, worked his tail off, never missed, until finally his teammates brought him in, went to the coach and said, please let him come practice with us. This is not right. He did, and he helped them win more games. But that told me that was as much, yes, David Beckham had a lot of raw talent, but to your point earlier, he, if he had had all the raw talent and none of the character, he never would have been the David Beckham that we're watching a documentary about. By the same token, I had an up-close view of, the, of Jeff Skilling and the Enron team. Uh, I was uh, I was working. We had a small startup that I had, uh, I had with uh, two partners, and we worked. And Enron was our sole client. And watching these traders and the employees work under the direction of Jeff Skilling, where it was win at all costs. That was the character of that company. It's win at all costs, even if it means showing little to no character. So those are two contrasting in sport and in business that speak exactly to what you're talking about. Now, I would like to ask you a question. As you've gone into, I mean, like you talk about the, uh, the mining company and these global firms that you're, that you're working with and you're dealing with the CEO, how are you able to, okay, let me back up. Have you ever gone into a situation, and this is something I face, I'm, I would love your advice on. I have learned that if a board brings me in to help and I'm using coach and mentor synonymously. I know that there's, mm -hmm. that's, that's probably some differences, but if they bring me in to say coach, a CEO or a division leader, there's a lot more resistance at that point because they've said, Hey, CEO, you need this guy. Whereas if a CEO reaches out to me and says, Hey, I'm incredible at, 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 um, at executing acquisition and running the business. But I also have some blind spots, be it character, be it just leadership skills. I need you. That works better. How have, have you had to face that situation where the CEO that's obviously successful, they've got the tools or they wouldn't be the CEO. And they, how do you gain their trust to where they, they're able to step back and go, I'm going to listen to what David has to say because he has the experience and I'm going to, I'm going to be vulnerable because that can be very hard for a CEO. How do you manage that interpersonal relationship with your clients? Um, <clears throat> well, there's a very simple answer to that. You can read about the CEO in their annual report, his LinkedIn or her LinkedIn press comments, whatever, whatever. But, uh, before I started working with any CEO as a client, um, I used to get them to do a very comprehensive and detailed 360 and, um, surprise, surprise, how they saw themselves versus how everybody else saw them was often very different. And so immediately you're armed with information that it would take years to find out 
if you didn't have that information. Um, and so you, you might start off the conversation by saying, well, tell me some of the challenges that you're facing in your business and some of the things that you'd like to achieve a breakthrough with in your business. <clears throat> and they might talk about, oh, we should be growing our top line a lot more than we are. We should have much better margins that we've got. Our supply chain's a bit screwed up and we should improve that. We're finding it very difficult to retain people. We've got such big churn in the company. Uh, so we've, and uh, we've got recruitment problems and whatever. And um, I go, and how would you describe the culture of your company today? Oh, you know, we're get up and go company. We're creative. We're agile. And they say, well, the usual bullshit. It's like, okay, well, um, tell me about you and your leadership style, you know, describe yourself. Oh, I'm this and I'm that and the other. Okay. Well, that's fantastic. Wonderful. Um, let's now have a look through how the 22 people in your senior leadership team and other people have, um, how they've evaluated you. Well, that is the great undressing. Uh, because there and then these people were giving feedback with good intentions and they know what the strategy is. They all know what the problems in the company are and, and they're specifically asked to give feedback in terms of how could Jason, you know, become a better leader to overcome the challenges we're facing to achieve the desired you know, outcome we're looking for. And so it's quite context specific um and you know if nine of your 10 assessors say that well jason can be a bit of a bully but you don't see yourself as a bully at all you describe yourself as encouraging guess what there's an awful lot you can unpack in that conversation um and so i kind of have always started off by understanding what they think the challenges in their industry are and their company are for them as a leader in their culture. And then I work with them to have a look at what their senior leadership team and others have, what they've said about it. Have you ever um, had, have you ever had an executive, you go through the 360 and they say, these people are full of shit. They don't know me at all. They don't know what they're talking about. And then you have to coach them through kind of that defensive nature. Um, in all honesty, I haven't, I haven't. And, um, but that's not because I was particularly lucky to not have one. I think I was particularly smart to figure out that that might be how that person would be. Mm -hmm. And I chose not to work with them. Um, and so one of the reasons I think my old firm was very successful is because we chose our clients very, very carefully, and but we chose our mentors even more carefully. And I'll, I'll give you an example of that. Um, there was a very famous British retail company that um, had had a pretty turbulent few years and they um, ousted their CEO. And um, he was in, only in the job a couple of years, I think. And anyway, he ended up applying to us to become a mentor. He'd heard about us. 
And, um, you know, it's a very famous British household name and he was a household name too. And, you know, it normally, you know, a household name like him and his company would have been good on our website and, you know, oh, look, the former CEO of that company as one of their mentors. Anyway, after chatting to this chap for about 15 or 20 minutes, I said to him, you know, Fred, you know, you're just not a good fit for us. Um, and he said, why is that? And I said, well, because I just asked you, uh, what have been some of the setbacks and the challenges that you've had in your career and how have you overcome them? And you said, I've never had a setback I've needed to overcome. And it's like, well, in which case, how are you ever going to be able to mentor a CEO dealing with constant setbacks that they need to overcome? And so if I had gone in to interview him to become a potential client, I'm sure I would have had the same story from him. And it's like, and, and if you'd had to, well, I'm not really here as a volunteer. I'm here because the chairman sent me. It's like, there's no point even starting with someone like that. But I'm exaggerating to make the point. Sure. Uh, I mean, sometimes you could say, well, you know, why do you think the chairman has sent you? And, you know, da, 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 and what's the chairman said to you? And well, is that something you think you like to work on and fix? And, you know, maybe sometimes people say, well, actually, yes, I would. But if they were really arrogant and conceited. And... Going back to, some, to something you said about Enron earlier, I think that's a really, there are plenty of organizations around the world where the leader and the culture is ruthless, absolutely ruthless. And you only survive by eating what you kill and, um, I can't think of a company that's had that leadership and that culture over multiple generations. Um, and maybe there are a few, uh, maybe in financial services and a few other places like that. But I think that um, what's happened in the world, particularly the last 10 years, with younger people entering the workforce, who have figured out, you know what, I'm probably never going to save up enough money for a deposit on buying my own house and getting on the property ladder. Um, and I've got this student debt's going to take me 20 years to pay off. So my life's not going to be like my parents. And so actually, perhaps I don't want to pursue the golden escalator career and lifetime that my parents had. I want to do something more meaningful and more purposeful. Well, work for Greenpeace or a charity or in the, in the green or try, or try to turn a fortune 500 company into an activist organization or a Greenpeace. And that's yeah. where that's, we see a lot of that, that happening now. That's going on a lot. Um, changes the company from the inside. Um, and, and also in the UK, and I think these stats apply in America as well. Every year for the last 10 years, the percentages of people exiting college or university that want to become an entrepreneur has just gone up and up and up mm. and up up and up every single year. And so the real talent that leaves college and university often doesn't want to go and work for a big company. They want to go and set their own thing up or go make a difference in the world somewhere. Right. So, but, you know, let's face it, you know, even organizations like the mafia, you know, have a culture. Um, and 
Hamas have a culture and, uh, and, and we might not understand it or we might not relate to it. But interestingly enough, in order to survive in one of those cultures, there are probably character qualities that you need to dial up or be have uh, strengths, um, but use them in a different way to how you use them in a, in a, in a, in a, in a nice situation. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I think so, that's a very, I think that's a very fair point. And I want to ask you this question, not, not to cut you off, but you just jogged something. So obviously diversity, inclusion, and, and all the rest is such a, a, such a topic of discussion, but it's kind of goes and, and correct me if I'm wrong, but it's almost kind of what you were talking about earlier. It's okay. It's the person that has the beautiful PowerPoint, but knows none of the content and without the PowerPoint, they're completely crippled it versus the person who truly understands and knows the content, What you said there, I think makes a lot of sense. If we bring people in from all over the globe, which most large organizations are just going to have, whether it's in the UK, whether it's in uh, Singapore, whether it's in America, they're going to have a mix of cultures. And what I think the, the, the thing that devalues the whole diversity and inclusion movement is that you're trying to meet a metric, a report, and so that you can say you know it. Instead of truly looking and going, okay, what is the difference in these cultures that we can accentuate to one, okay. make that individual more comfortable, right? Because they're getting to heighten what's best about what they bring to the table. It seems like that's, there's a lot of that going on as opposed to truly trying to make something better. Am I, am I missing that? No, no, no. Let me, let me tell you a quick story. And then I, I, I want to describe a little bit how IntelliKey solves that problem. Um, and so the quick story is many, many years ago. So for every super expensive fee paying client I had, I also had a pro bono client who I worked with for nothing and they ran a charity or a not-for-profit or a social enterprise. And in one of those pro bono clients, um, there was a, um, a, a new CEO parachuted in and, um, and two or three months later, Everyone in the entire company was talking about a log jam, a bottleneck, you know, where this person wanted to sign every check and open every letter and do everything. And whilst I was waiting to go in and have a meeting with this CEO, um, in the office outside, there was the accounts manager and this person and this person. Anyway, I was talking to the accounts manager and she was lovely and delightful and clearly very competent at her job. And I said, oh, what do you do when you're not at work? And she said, oh, well, actually, I'm a magistrate in the local court system. And, you know, I get to send people to prison and find them and I'm responsible. And I'm also the head of our community center. And I've got a multi-hundred thousand pound a year budget that I have to look after. And I said, oh, great. Okay. Anyway, so I'm talking to the CEO um, half an hour later. And he's like, oh, well, there's no one in this organization I can trust. Um, and with the money and everything, I said, you do realize that Janet sitting outside does this, this, and this outside of work. And he's like, no, I didn't know that about her at all. So, uh, so of course, a week later, he delegated everything to her and solved that bottleneck. Anyway, going over to your diversity and inclusion. So when we go into a company, we want them to become in a year's time, a company of character. That's the mission. And we, we want to create qualitative and quantitative measurements of an improvement in, in productivity and profitability that will generate a gigantic ROI on our intervention. So how does that start off? A bit like when I used to take on a mentoring client, 
we get, we show the 54 character qualities to every employee, every single employee. And we say, rate yourself in terms of strengths. Okay, so-so, and need to work on this one. Then we get everyone to get 10 people in the company to do a 360 on them. So they can compare how they see themselves versus how other people see them. And then we ask them, um, how do you see the entire company today's strengths and, and growth opportunities? And what would you like the strengths to be in a year's time? And out of that, every individual gets a report which says, here's your 180, how you see yourself. Here's your 360 and how everybody else sees you and a Delta report. Here's how everybody sees the company and how you see it in the Delta report. And here's how everyone would like to see the company and you in a Delta report. And it also gives them an AI-powered, personalized learning journey in terms of what character qualities they could work on to have the quickest wins and the biggest hits, you know, out the doors. And the company gets this report called a kaleidoscope in an interactive dashboard where they can say, hmm, let's look at our marketing team of 40 people. Who are the peak performers? You know, who are the top five or six people in the marketing? What character qualities do they have? Oh, it looks like they've got all the same ones. So now we know which other character qualities we need the other people to dial up to become as good as the top performers. But what this also brings out is, oh, that's interesting because Jenny in HR and Sophie in logistics, they've got all of the character qualities that you need to be brilliant in marketing. So maybe we ought to be swapping them around and, and getting, getting them off that seat in the bus and getting them to another seat in the bus. And by the way, there's two people in marketing who've got all the right skills that would work in HR or finance. And the other beautiful thing about this that you can do is you can look at through the kaleidoscope at age, length of service, you know, been in the company less than a year, less than five years, more than 10 years, whatever, gender, ethnicity. And then you end up going, wow, the most creative people in our company are not in the creative team. They're over there and over there and over there, and they're a mixed bag of religions and races and genders and all that. And so you can have the most creative person in your company, not in the creative department. You could have the person who, and so it really, what it does is take away all of that diversity and inclusion, um, confusion or, um, barriers. Because you see everybody, regardless of their race, their gender, or whatever, their color, through the prism of character, which applies to everybody. Well, and I got to think, too, if you have an organization with employees where their, their skill set and their passions are matched with their vocation, they're probably not going to complain. They're probably going to be excited that they're contributing because I guess it was uh, Daniel Pink that said, what is it, autonomy, purpose, and uh, there's one other I'm missing that is what truly brings about the best in employees. Everybody thinks it's just, you just pay them more, pay them more. If that's the carrot that everybody wants and no, it's, it's not, it's, it's giving them autonomy, independence. And, and I think it was something uh, to the point of like being heard or feeling like they, they actually have an impact. So if you've got employees in the, in the right seat on the bus, 
then I would think that they're much less likely to look over and go, well, why am I not doing that? That's probably better than what I'm doing. So that makes a lot of sense. I want to ask you a question. Go ahead. Sorry. Just very quickly, in in my book, Breakthrough, I devised a very simple little formula for being in the optimum flow to become your entelechy, which is find a job that you're absolutely brilliant at, that you love doing, that pays the bills and makes a difference. Mm. And by the way, there's no reason why after two years or three years or four years and you've grown and learned more, there isn't another role that you could do brilliantly and love doing and pay the bills and make a difference. Um, but it's people who are in work um, who aren't brilliant at the job and they don't really like it and they're therefore not making a difference, uh, that they will move for money. But, you know, that we've had plenty of company, with big companies, we've had plenty of people over the last couple of years join our little company um, where we've advertised for a digital marketing assistant or, you know, a content partner or a copywriter, all sorts of different jobs. And they've actually taken a pay cut to come and join us because they believe in our mission and vision and values and purpose. And they want to be part of making a difference to help everybody in the world become their entelechy. Mm-hmm. And I'm not talking about a 50% pay cut or anything, but you know, if they were earning 40 grand a year and we were advertising the job at 36 grand a year, they'll think actually, and of course in, in the modern world, if that means because we're a completely remote company. Oh, actually, I can work from home and I don't need to move uh, to get this new job. Then I can save four grand a year on travel costs and commuting or whatever. You know, So in their head, they're like, I can still pay the bills, but I, this is a job I'll absolutely love and I'll be brilliant at it and it'll make a difference in the world. You know, one of the biggest problems that I have, David, and I've had this for years, man, is that you could put me in a nitroglycerin plant And within a certain, I wouldn't be the best nitroglycerin plant manager, but I could figure it out and I would run it good enough to make a living at it. And so I've been able to figure out how to do a lot of things. And so, and I do a lot of things that actually make me money. The things I'm passionate about, public service, uh, you know, podcasting, I'm, I'm terribly passionate about these things, but I haven't been able to coalesce all of them into what you're talking about of doing something purposeful and getting paid a uh, s- such that I can, you know, pay the, bills. pay the bills, no debt. My my wife's not mad at me saying that I'm just, you know, pursuing vain pursuits. That's what's been the most challenging thing for me. You know, I've, I've, I told you I've, I've started multiple companies, run them. I have learned this about myself. Kind of like what Drucker said to Jim Collins. He said, you can either run a world-class company or do like what David C.M. Carter does, help others run world-class companies, but you can't do both. You can't be the CEO of Amazon, Jeff Bezos or, or whatever, and also go out and be an executive coach. You got to gotta pick your lane. So I figured out that I don't necessarily, that's why I escaped from corporate America at the age of 28 and became an entrepreneur. I realized I was on a path to do that, to, to climb the ladder. But I was like, I don't want to run a major organization. I like developing people and coaching and mentoring and watching them excel 
but I feel like, you know, and I, I have not read your book breakthrough yet. It's, it's actually, it's, it's on my uh, order list since we were doing this conversation. And I think that's where I'm looking for the breakthroughs. I've got all of these, just, I'm a generalist. I am the, I am the, the epitome of a generalist. Um, but honing it all into a, a focus of what I should be doing each and every day, it's been a real challenge for me. And I, I'll take any advice you might have. Um, I think it does go back, and sorry to repeat myself, to the, am I brilliant at it? Do I love doing it? Does it pay the bills and does it make a difference? And so I can tell you hundreds of stories. I remember many, many years ago, I lived in New York uh, for a year and I, 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 in the previous year I'd lived in La Jolla, California and I'd started to learn to play the saxophone and I had a brilliant teacher in California and I ended up hiring a, a young lady who was absolutely brilliant at playing the saxophone. I mean, she was brilliant. Um, and she loved doing it, but it didn't pay the bills. And it made a difference, but it didn't pay the bills. And, and eventually, you know, she had to accept that however hard she practiced, um, however many auditions she went to, uh, you know, she was never going to be able to. And so she decided she was going to become a teacher. And she was brilliant at being a teacher. She loved doing it. It paid the bills and it made a big difference to her students. Right. And she realized, you know, two years after this epiphany that she was making twice, three times as much as she ever would have made if she'd stuck to trying to be a performing artist. And I could tell you hundreds of stories over the years. And, you know, another friend of mine, um, was, I mean, I am, I wouldn't describe myself as a generalist at all, but you know, I'm most of my friends would say that I'm a really good cook and I, you know, I'm really good at it. And actually I, I enjoy it, but I, the enjoyment for me isn't so much the cooking. It's the sitting around the table and having the conversation over the meal. That's it's the company and the quality yeah. of the conversation. I love. So. You know, I, I think I get a high rating of I'm a really good chef. Um, and, you know, I like doing it for different reasons. I certainly don't think anyone would ever pay me to cook for them. And I'm not sure it makes a difference. So it may be the... And so I think that I've met so many... Uh, and by the way, I've met so many CEOs in my long career so when you, you know, go out for dinner with them or go out for lunch and you stop having the mentoring and get to know them a bit better, they're like, oh, how did you end up being the chief executive of this law firm or whatever? Mm -hmm. um, oh, my father was a lawyer, my grandfather was a lawyer, and you know, it was just assumed I'd always go into the law. And so my parents helped me get into a great university and then helped me open the door through my uncle to get into this firm, and here I am, 30 years later, as the CEO of this law firm. Um, and are you happy doing it? Well, you know, I'm the senior partner, so what's that to like? I said, yeah, but if you had your time again and you could have done something completely differently and it still paid the bills and made a difference, 
oh, I would have been a jazz singer or I would have been a pastry chef or whatever. I don't know what they say. Um, and often it's really sad that those people say, well, you know, I'm earning a million dollars a year and I've got a second home in Malibu and whatever it is. Are you happy? Well, I'm not unhappy. Yeah. But are you happy? Well, I'm, I'm not unhappy. That was all they could ever say. So, and so, um, we used to do this thing at Merrick, which obviously I'm not involved with anymore um, in the last 10 years or so, but we used to have this business leaders forum gig and we, and we used to get them to do things as well as just sit and talk and do things that they never would have done before. And afterwards they'd say, oh my God, I never in a million years thought I'd go paragliding or whatever. And we got to do things that were really fun and bonding and they all ended up. And one of the things that I learned about really successful CEOs, they were nearly always very humble and modest about their achievements. Mm -hmm. Um, they realized it was as much by luck than by judgment that they ended up doing well. And whenever they got together, they never bragged about, oh, I doubled the share price and trebled the rent. They all talked about the war stories and the, and the oh, disasters yeah. they overcome. Oh, sure. Yeah. Those are, those are always more fun. I think you really just helped me there with the, the story of the teacher, because one of the things that, like I mentioned earlier, I love this podcast. I, I would not have met you otherwise. I wouldn't have met so many of the, the fascinating people that I get to speak to on a weekly basis. And one of the things that um, I have considered doing is teaching other people how to start their podcast. Because if you're a guy like me, that I me, mean, it took me forever. There's a lot of resistance to starting a podcast. It is not is not nearly as hard as a lot of people think. You think you have to have technical skills and all this sort of thing, but it's something that I can do very easily now. As I can scale it as big or as small as you want, and I don't want to be the next Joe Rogan. That that does not appeal to me at all. And so, because of fame and that sort of thing, to me, this is building. I always call this building my birdhouse every day. It's this conversation recorded and what we'll do with it later. It did not exist yesterday, but it will exist in perpetuity after this. We, you and I have together built something and that's the satisfaction for me, but I want to help other people do that. And I think I could probably monetize that to teach others to, to do that. So I, it's, it's weird that you mentioned the saxophone teacher, uh, because I love doing this, but you know, podcasts, you know, are not, it, it, I always tell people, if you're going to start a podcast to make a lot of money, you're wasting your time. You better be leveraging it for knowledge to build an audience for something else you're doing or something to that effect. But the teaching I would love to do, I would love to help other people, CEOs that want to have conversations and, and, and just create something. So I think you uh, inadvertently gave me some great advice there. So I, I appreciate that. I'll send you the invoice. Uh, you, you got it. You got it. Deal. Um, okay. Now, one of the uh, questions I want to ask you too, before I let you go, who are some CEOs or leaders that you could just, whether you've coached them or not, like I know that the one that jumps to mind, he was, I knew him personally before he was the CEO of Home Depot uh, and then was mentioned in Jim Collins' Good to Great book, Frank Blake. Kind of like you said, very humble guy, very smart, very academic guy, um, loved by his team. Just a good, he, he's kind of my avatar, I guess, hedgehog CEO is what Jim Collins, I think he fell in that category. But who are some of the leaders that you look at and, and, and think to yourself, this is someone who has found their passion, matched their talent, and they're just, they have the character to lead an organization through good times and bad. And they're that, they're that leader that will, 100x a company versus that one that 
they had all the things, they had everything they needed going in, but they just couldn't get there. Do you have some of those? Um, I'm going to be very controversial given okay. that you're in Texas and your audience is probably nearly all in America. <clears throat> yes. You'd be surprised. We've got a big following in the UK. So you're in, believe it or not. So we're, we're so it's, it's, it, you'd be surprised. Okay. But I don't think anyone in your audience would disagree that the world's got a lot of problems at the moment. Absolutely. Um, whether it's this new war in Israel or in Ukraine, um, the, the world's in a pretty terrible state at the moment. And we need real, real leaders. And the puppet show, the duopoly of, in your world, the Democrats versus the Republicans has got to stop. Um, it, it, it's, it's, a, it's so horrible to watch where everyone around the world used to admire America and now we laugh at you. Yeah. Um, and you've scored more own goals in the last few years than any football team in history. And so the leader that I'm going to say I admire the most, who I'd love to have to dinner, is Robert F. Kennedy Jr. Really? Interesting. And I have been a huge fan of his for many, many years. I was introduced to him many years ago um, because of his work with Children's Health Defense. Um, and the work he's done is painstakingly researched and, and he really is out there to make the world a better place and safer for children. And, um, I watched his interview podcast on Joe Rogan a month or so ago. Mm -hmm. And you know, I, I didn't feel I knew him well, but I knew of his work and I knew where he was coming from. Uh, and I've always liked his intellect and his articulation. And he went on to Joe Rogan, which is like a three hour interview. And Joe Rogan in the first five, 10 minutes was typical Joe Rogan. You know, he's like, well, you don't have a very good reputation. I've heard bad things about you and you're not credible because of this, that, and the other. Anyway. And at the end of three hours, Joe Rogan was humbled, absolutely humbled to have participated in a rational, clear, calm, articulate conversation about all of the many challenges that he would hope to be able to resolve, not only for American citizens, but for the world. Um, so that would be my nominee for you. I, that's an interesting choice. I've actually reached out to uh, Robert F. Kennedy Jr.'s team to try to get him on the show. A friend of mine just uh, sat down with him in Austin, and so I'm hoping that by a bank shot connection, we can get him on. As you can imagine, he's getting requests uh, by the thousands. And so I, I respect that. But, and there's something that you said there that I can completely understand uh, where you're coming from. He has no reason to do it other than to do good. And then I think that's what we we lack over here a lot. Uh, it, Trump is his own animal. All the others have been in the political game. And, and I'm not saying that they're right or wrong for that. That's their choice of vocation. And that's where they pursued to make their difference in the world. But Robert F. Kennedy Jr. does come at it from a perspective. It seems that he really has nothing to gain except more scrutiny, which Lord knows he's had plenty of that for 
for a number of years, whether it's regard in regard to to vaccination or whatever the, the case may be. So I do think he is that rare leader that's coming at it for no ulterior motive, for sure. And you also bring up a good point in that, and what we're suffering from over here for sure is that we're we're leaders have always been in short supply, but it just these days it's getting to the point where if you want to run for president of the United States of America, if you are that good leader, you 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 have to you have to do the calculus and say, okay, my reputation is going to be destroyed. I'm going to have be taken down. I'm going to get thrown into this just ridiculous clown show that can be American politics. So I worry that so many of those folks that we would like to be uh, in the arena will just will stay out. It, and, it, and I hate to hear you say that. I got some of the same sentiments whenever I was in Europe earlier this year, like I mentioned before we got on. I would ask people, so what does it look like from here looking across the pond? And they just said, what the hell's going on? What no, is that? We, we help build companies of character and people of character, but, you know, wouldn't it be great if America restored itself as a country of character? Yeah, uh, it, it would be beautiful. I, I, one of the, one of my dear friends is an, is an ex- sorry, can I, 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 sure, sorry, sure. I just wanted to very, um, very sadly, she passed away a number of years ago, but, and I won't tell you the whole long story, but my mother's brother's wife, my auntie. Uh, came from New Zealand and was a Maori. And she was the most beautiful person on the inside and the outside I think I've ever met. And she, going back to do something you're passionate about and you're great at doing and pays the bills and makes a difference, she was a reception class teacher um, in a school in Auckland. And she, despite every year being offered pay rises, promotions, deputy headmistress position, blah, blah, blah. She goes, no, 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 Um, God sent me to this planet to teach young people to love to learn. And I love my job and I'm going to stay here. So for her entire career, she was the reception class teacher in this school for the entire career. When um, she retired and was ill and and was passing away, and I actually flew over, in, in New Zealand they have a, Thing called a tangi, which is like a, a living wake where you go and pay your respects to the person. And literally, no Facebook campaign, no nothing. Hundreds and hundreds of people came over from the mainland to the island to pay their respects to my auntie. And these were people like the chief executive of the Bank of New Zealand and the Minister for Transport and the Minister for Education and the Captain of the Riders Cup team or whatever it was. America's Cup team. And they all said, oh, Mrs. Salmon taught me this and I've never forgotten it. So if you describe a leader as someone who makes a difference to people's lives and has followers, I think my auntie was one of the greatest leaders I've ever known. And so when you start to talk about leaders, stop looking at the top of the Christmas tree and look at the people further down the Christmas tree who are the ones that everybody wants to work for, everybody wants to go and talk to about, you know, get some coaching or mentoring or support from them. And so being at the top does not mean leadership. Could not not agree more. What an honoring thing to say about your aunt as well. I mean, that, and, and you're so right. You, you reminded me in that story. Have you read uh, Eric Schmidt's book, The Trillion Dollar Coach, about Bill Campbell, by chance? 
I, I haven't, but uh, by the way, I've met Jim Collins many times and good to great built to last. Oh, yeah, I, I would imagine. Well, you, you're all in the same class. I know, but, but I, I, haven't, I haven't written there. Um, yeah. Rhetoric. Well, so Bill Campbell was essentially the uh, executive mentor, much like yourself, to Steve Jobs, uh, John Chambers, mm-hmm. uh, many of these Silicon Valley titans. Never took a penny of compensation. He had made enough. I think it was applied materials or somewhere where he made his fortune. He was a he was a football coach. He coached at Columbia and ended up out in Silicon Valley taking a sales job, made a lot of money, remained out there, never took compensation from any of these uh, folks that he coached. But it was exactly like you were saying about your aunt. I mean, I guarantee you I could go ask 10 people that are working in Fortune 500. They probably wouldn't know who Bill Campbell was unless they happened to read the book because Eric Schmidt made him famous. But that's, to me, those are the, the, the folks that if you can have that character quality about you, that you have the followers, regardless of the title and all the accolades. I, before I let you go, I want you to at least mention your academy, who it's for, and kind of what is the structure uh, uh, of it and anything you want this audience to know, because that's something that I actually want to look into. So can you describe that real quick before we go? Um, Antelike dot academy is our website and you can also go to IntelliKey academy on linkedin where we've got white papers and all sorts of things published but IntelliKey academy at the moment is a b2b enterprise business um where we're helping companies become a company of character as i described earlier um and so if you're a ceo or a chief people officer or something and you're interested in finding out more about how you could drive, build your company to become a character, a company of character and drive productivity and performance um, through the development of character, then go to www.intelliki.academy or Intelliki Academy on LinkedIn. And, you know, you'll, there's lots of ways to contact me through LinkedIn or through the team, through the website. Um, but it works basically, as I was describing earlier, to get those two reports in the discover phase, which is like the MRI scan, um, the diagnosis of the character competence of your organization. And then you work out, okay, well, here's where we are. Here's where we want to get to in a year's time. And then we basically get everyone to work on the character qualities that will dial themselves up and move everybody towards the desired outcome. And so everybody gets an app. And there's more data and insights and some handholding consulting. But essentially, you and I could be teammates in the same department and you've got to work on being more collaborative and organized and reliable. And I've got to work on being calm and kind and something else. And and actually, you've got all of the three things I need to work on as strengths. Um, and so it's like, okay, Jason, well, I've got to work on this one. What are your tips? What are your ideas? What's your advice for me? How can I do that in my job? You know me. Oh, well, how about you try this? And can I, can I finish on, have we got a minute for to finish? So, We've got as much time as you need, please. Okay. So about six months ago, we took on uh, a new senior guy in our sales team. And every Monday morning at 10 o'clock, everyone in the entire company gets on a half an hour Zoom call. And we talk about which character qualities we're going to work on this month. And we choose one personal one and one professional one. And a lot of people say, oh, you're born with your character. You can't change it. 
and I'm just going to prove to you how rubbish that is. You know, I was born a Capricorn. I can't change that, but I can certainly change, you know, my character. So anyway, he chose to work on disciplined as his professional one and kind as his personal one. And so one of the girls in the team who was on his section said, why do you want to work on discipline? He said, well, you know, I've got a big sales target to achieve. And I know that I get easily distracted by all the pings on my mobile phone, WhatsApp messages, Slack messages, but I need to more, be more disciplined and, and make my sales calls and what have you. And so one of the other guys in the thing said, well, my what way I do that is I book myself a diary appointment and say, make sales calls from nine o'clock till uh, 10, 15. And then I put in my diary coffee break from 10, 15 till 10, 30, and then 10, 30 to 11, 45, make calls. And then 11, 45 to 12 o'clock coffee break. And I put it in my diary. So I'm really super organized and disciplined with how I spent. Oh, that's very clever. Right, that's very easy to do. I can do that. And the, and the lady colleague said to him, why don't you leave your mobile phone in the kitchen next to the coffee machine? And then you won't be distracted by the pings. And he said, well, that's two very simple things to do. Anyway, the next week on the following Monday, he turns up to the team and says, well, that was two silly, simple piece of advice, but I reckon I made, um, four hours more sales calls in a, in a week. So I was probably at least, you know, 10, 15% more productive. One silly, simple idea. But my favorite story is about the kind one. And so again, in his team, I wasn't in his team, um, but I've watched the recordings. Um, one of the ladies said, well, who do you want to be kind to? And he said, well, my wife, we've been married 30 years. I've just had my first grandchild. I want to really show her how much I appreciate her. So I'm going to decide to be more kind to my wife. And one of the other ladies in the room said, what would she appreciate? And he said, oh, it's not big things. It's silly little things. Um, I'll see if I can remember that. Oh, yes. First was take the trash out on Tuesday night and put it on the roadside for the people to collect it the next morning at five o'clock. The second was without being asked or nagged at nine o'clock at night, take the dog round the block for a pee before bedtime. Number three was if it's starting to rain, rush out and get the washing and put it in the basket, put it in the utility room. And the fourth one was, oh yes, he went first thing in the morning to the gym and his gym was right next to her dry cleaners. And so if she left her tickets for the dry cleaning to be collected, pick them up, go to the gym, pick them up. So she didn't need to go during the day. Anyway, on the Friday evening, um, normally they would always on a Friday evening, have supper at home, the two of them together. And she would bring him a gin and tonic at half past six, tell him, clear your desk, switch your laptop off. Supper's going to be at seven o'clock. But this particular Friday, she came in and bought two gin and tonics in, sat down on the chair in his office and said, right, I'm going to come straight to the point. Are you having an affair? <laughs> and he's like, no, of course not. Why do you ask that? She said, well, this new company you've joined, what drugs are they giving you? And, and she said, you've collected my dry cleaning. You took the garbage out. You've taken the dog for a walk. You let, and I'm going to ask your naggy once. He said, oh, well, I'm doing this thing to improve being kind. And she said, well, keep taking the intelligent drugs. And, and, and so the reason I'm telling you that is just in a week, 
think of the quick wins and the impact that he get, had from concentrating on being more kind to his wife and more disciplined at work. Is that? And then, of course, over the following weeks and months, he'd say, oh, I started to be more kind to my daughter or to my neighbor or my boss or my colleague. And I started to be more disciplined in this area of my life, in this area of my life. And so there's 54 character qualities, any one of which you can work on for a week in a personal or professional capacity, and it will make a big difference in your life. So what's not to like about it? I love it. Now, is there a play, is there a, where I can get the 54 character traits and put them on in the show notes for folks? Is there a place I can grab those? Um, if you, I can email, I think I've, you had an email email from me earlier on today and i'll just send you a, a one-page pdf that'd be perfect i appreciate that so listeners we will have those up as well as the website address and i got to tell you i you, you've given me something new you went you went to aristotle i went to da vinci so i started a vitruvian project because i the vitruvian being my muse whenever i read walter isaacson's book on da vinci that's where i first learned the story of vitruvius the architect and then bring it forward to vitruvian man and da Vinci's attempt to draw the perfectly proportioned man. I thought that would serve as a nice muse for what I want to do is create perfect proportion. And that's where my motto, improve always in all ways, comes from. And so in Teleki, now I will have that in my arsenal as yet another thing to reinforce this idea that constant improvement is something that should never stop. And I, I can't think of much better to pursue than excellence and character and so uh this i think that this has been a an incredibly uh you've been a great mentor for both me and this audience david i appreciate that my pleasure thank you well i really appreciate you being on and and the the invitation is there i would love to have you on anytime we can support you and now and what's happened in the past and i, I would certainly offer this to you once we do this initial interview which is almost like an interview get to know one another then come back on anytime and let's just pick a topic and, and on leadership, on character. If you want to bring uh, one of your, uh, either one of your business associates or someone that you've trained, I think those are some of the most meaningful conversations to just let people be a fly on the wall and kind of hash through some issues and, and some challenges that leaders have and who better than uh, David C.M. Carter to help work it out. I think that would be a, fun, a lot of fun. So just know that invitation is always there. That's very kind of me. Thank you. All right, brother. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, sit tight and I'm going to hit pause. Well, that does it for this episode of the Jason Wright Show. Thank you so much for listening. This has been a Texas Titan Media production. Fourth Wall did the music. And as always, thank you so much for listening. Please consider going out to jasonwrightnow.com and signing up for the Vitruvian Letter. Also, please go out to iTunes. It takes like 30 seconds to just leave us a five-star rating. It does wonders for the podcast. I would be so grateful. And with that, until we meet again, go crush it and endeavor to improve always in all ways. I'm out.